Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 446 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, C.D. Rose speaks with Anne Morgan about blurring the lines between fact and fiction, being persuaded to write a book and finding ways to commemorate geniuses whose work is never discovered. C.D. Rose's first book grew out of frustration with the publishing industry. Originally created as a website, the mischievous and satirical biographical dictionary of literary failure became so popular that it drew a publisher to approach Rose about turning it into a book. There followed two more novels, both of them built around books and stories that are not told or that somehow fail to be remembered. When I spoke to Rose, he started off by telling me how he began to write. It's one of those things that I've always done. I mean, ever since I could hold a pencil, I've always written stories. So there's something impulsive about it there, um, about about wanting to put words on a page. I have no idea where that came from or or even if it's particularly unusual or, or if most children are like that. But But later on, when I began writing seriously, it came from reading... Uh, and particularly from the ages of about, I would say, from 16, 17, 18 onwards, when when you're just discovering that, that wide world of literature there, you're moving on from children's books and finding all this wonderful, strange stuff that's out there. And, and much as I loved reading and still do love reading, uh, everything comes from, from the reading. It was the kind of the response to it. Somehow I had to, to write back or write around or write to a lot of the the things that I was that I was reading somehow it felt like completing those those books in in some ways or or, or responding to them um, and I never really knew how sort of to... in conversation with books I think so yeah and and at some points it was it was just attempts to copy them uh, knowingly or unknowingly to, so. So, you know, that your first writers that you fall in love with, you start writing bad copies of their work and then they get better and better and better until you manage to be able to throw them away. So so some of some of it was that, but in a way that I never really knew what I was doing. Uh, I had no sense. I think I probably started trying to write awful poetry at first <laughs> and then realised that, that prose was, was more what I was supposed to be doing, but it took me a long time to get it into any kind of workable shape or to work out it, to put much together that was much longer than half a page or for it to have any discernible structure. And it wasn't actually only until I was in my mid-30s that I really started properly writing seriously. And then it kind of fell into place, the way I wanted to write and how to do things. And I'm sure that was... The, the, the outcome of, of long years of, of reading with occasional scribbling in the margins, either literally or, or metaphorically. Yeah, I think that's something we have in common, actually, because um, reading's a big part of my life and my work as well, in that um, I do a lot with international literature and reading 
reading the world mm-hmm. and and that's a big part of my work and I found that after I did this project um when I was 30 where I, I read a book from every country in the world in a year suddenly my fiction writing opened up prior to that I'd tried mm. for years to write fiction and written loads of unpublishable stuff and then suddenly having had this very intense exposure to these extraordinary stories from all around the planet I found that my process and my my imagination was sort of blown open almost and the possibility was was blown open was there anything particular for you that you read that you think was transformative or um that really shaped you as a writer it's been different things at different stages and 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 I hate to sound both a obvious and b pretentious but honestly the (laughs) One of the one of the first works that really did it for me was Joyce's Ulysses, which I read aged eight, no, maybe eighteen, nineteen, and wow. and, and I understood little of it or, or bits of it. I did, bits of it were clear as anything, and other bits were impenetrable, which is, is possibly still the way. But that was one of those great books that makes you think, my word, you can you can do this, this, this is is possible, and 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 you can write like this, and you can you can blow everything apart and even though I didn't get it all it was that the kind of the even though obviously it's it's a really very carefully crafted book that the sense it gave me was uh, a, a freedom and possibility um so that was one and there were others uh, Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night a Traveller and Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose I was lucky we had a, a family friend who was one of those people who was terrible in that he gave me books that were far too difficult for me when I was too young so I was reading these things like that reading the Calvino and the Echo I remember when I was 15 or something and just just being 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 amazed by it by the by the by the playfulness uh, by the wit and the intelligence that was going into it from that later on so yeah it was, and then Joyce came it was huge and then later on well, Kafka, uh, obviously, I was a kind of a very intense early 20-year-old, so you just had to read Kafka, which <laughs> I thought was good at being intense. But now I look back at Kafka and I think it's so funny. Um, <laughs> so Kafka's always still there. And then Borges was, was the other one with that, again, with this following on from Echo and Calvino. It was very much that lineage. The other mm. huge writer for me was Angela Carter, who, again, uh, I, I first read in my early 20s. Who again had that that richness of language and the working with um, with traditional themes and narratives? I mean, a lot of the experimental stuff I was reading was all great, but what Carter gave to me was was was, was remembering to to tell a really good story. You know, that's mm. that's so important to me mm. in many ways. Now it's, it's so interesting what you say about that impulse to write coming from sort of. Uh, responding to books or, or completing books in a certain way or, or a conversation of a kind because all three of your books are books about books or around books in one way or another and your first book for example the biographical dictionary of literary failure is yeah. a hilarious overview of some lives of also rounds or people who nearly made it or might have made it but for things being differently as writers and, and some really extraordinary hilarious stories and and then your second novel is about a writer who goes to give a a lecture series about a forgotten writer at a university. And then your third book, it's supposedly a collection of short stories by a forgotten European writer. What is it about writing around books that really sparks your imagination like that? 
Again, I do, I do suspect it might be that those formative influences of that's why in particular I mentioned the Calvino and the Borges, mm. which were, which were very much about that, and and I just love that stuff, and that that's never really left me. It's also about the power of of, of fictional worlds and fiction, and and how writers do things. I I know about writers. I know writers. I've I've also written other things about painters and photographers uh, and musicians. Uh, but but writers, I think I probably know the best. I, I know what we're like and what makes us tick and what motivates us and what doesn't. So so that was always there. But that, but then the biographical dictionary, the first book, was written in very specific circumstances, which were um, I I done the dutiful thing when I when I started to take writing seriously, uh, and I'd gone and done an MA in creative writing, which which was all great, and and I was writing a, 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 a more a more let's say more traditional, more realist historical novel as part of that, which did quite well, and uh, and coming off the MA, a guy got picked up by an agent, and publishers were interested, and all that, and then I got dropped by by both the agents and the uh, and the and the publishers before the book was ever published and then I wrote a second one also a, a realist historical novel didn't get a look in anywhere nobody was remotely interested so I, I kind of got a bit I that I mean it's a curve we all go through but I, I kind of curled up and licked my wounds and decided I wasn't going to write any more novels I wasn't going to write any more books I wasn't going to do anything but because I do write and because it's what we do I couldn't kind of stop writing I couldn't give up altogether and I found I was I was just imagining these kind of tales about writers who'd been rejected or failed or been lost for various reasons. And there were just a number of them in my notebooks, very, very short stories. So I decided to turn it into a kind of self-defeating web project. I, I, I wanted nothing to, I was so cross at the time, I wanted nothing to do with publishers or agents or literary world. So I, I set up a little website and, and began to post one of these stories, these very short stories, one, uh, it was one a week. I was going to do one a week for a year and then delete the whole lot. So that was where the biographical diction of literary failure came from. And, but after it, it actually got bizarrely popular, people really liked it. And then a publisher got in touch with me and said, oh, we should think this should be a book. And at first I was, no, 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 this isn't a book. It's not, I don't, I don't want to write books anymore. And then, but luckily they were, they were persistent and, and eventually uh, persuaded me, of course, that they were right. And uh, so it became a book. And then the second one followed on from that. It was, the, the idea was to write another volume of, of this, like volume two, but I didn't quite want to do that. I, I thought I'd kind of covered that area. So, uh, but instead of looking at, at writers, it was about lost or forgotten books, mm. of which we all know there are too many, whether our own or, or we, we all know some some book which we think is fantastic and under, undeservedly neglected. So, so the idea was was to write about that and take the, this in the implied author of the first book, the biographical dictionary, to, to, to give him a, a real presence and to really make him a character in the second book where he goes off to, to deliver lectures about these great lost books. Mm. And then the third one came out of that because the, 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 the Goyevich character, the, the, the lost writer who, of the third book is, is mentioned in the, in the second book. and. Thought I'd gone as far as I could writing about imaginary books or describing books which don't exist, and I thought I actually, 
here are some real stories. There's, it's, I'm not just going to talk about these stories. They're, they're actually here. So you get the nine Goyevich stories with all the necessary critical commentary on them. I mean, it's really interesting what you do with your work because it is very playful. It plays with the line between reality and fiction. It's it's called parafictional sometimes, isn't it? And, and actually, it, there's a lovely line in the biographical dictionary where you, you talk about that curious and deadly 21st century affectation, a desire for authenticity. And I th it seems like that's something you're really challenging with this work because all of those books, I think, well, particularly the Biographical Dictionary and, and the Blind Accordionist, it would be, you could pick them up and start reading them and take them at face value, assume that they were about real people who had lived or that, that it was a genuine collection of short stories. And why do you think it's really important to push it that that you know to challenge that to blur that in that way it's that's such a good question because when i started writing these books which was when was it it was i mean it was nearly about a decade ago now uh when, when i first started with this idea and, and i just felt a sense of mischievous fun <laughs> about it uh, and when i was posting them those early stories on the web a lot of people did did think these were were real people and some were <laughs> amazed at how much research i'd done and the lengths i'd gone to to, to discover <laughs> all this and and i felt kind of gleefully wicked and, and naughty about it and, and and i still do there is still just something purely mischievous about 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 this um and yet there is also something which which does interest me about about fiction's claims to to reality, yet at the same time we know that it's not uh, the lie that tells the truth. And it's a question that I honestly don't know the answer to, and I'm still fascinated by about how where we draw the line between fiction and, and non-fiction, and particularly mm -hmm. this this strange hybrid genre that that's appeared over the last 10 years even though it's been around for a long time called creative non-fiction mm. um, and and how interesting it might be if some of those non-fictional works were fictional or, or vice versa i recently read a book by a, a guy called benjamin labertot called when we cease to understand the world it's the story of a number of 20th century physicists essentially and i thought that it, it was a mixture of facts and fiction, and that some of it was purely fiction. In fact, I think he, he has admitted that, that some small parts of it are fictional, but I thought whole chunks of it were fictional, and I was actually quite disappointed, <laughs> strangely, to find out that it, that it was non-fiction, that nearly all of it was true, and there were only a few speculative parts, which which is a kind of an odd response, and I'm not quite sure why I had that response. Mm -hmm. But the, the other thing, and, and why I think this is an important question, and why I sometimes genuinely worry about my own work, even though my work is in the grander scheme of things very marginal but over the last 10 years i mean we have seen that this muddying of the waters between what is true and what is not mm. and it, it it kind of stopped being funny when you see people i mean i'm not gonna name names because we all know who they are but people saying things that are patently untrue and, and claiming that they are true and it's that's that's very different. I get no sense of mischievous fun out of out of things like that. So I, mm. I do wonder about about the ethics. Genuinely, I wonder about the ethics of it sometimes. Mm. I mean, non-fiction is such an odd term, isn't it? It's kind of a, a void. Yeah. It's what mm. what it isn't. Defining something by what it isn't, which is a very strange 
thing. And actually, I find the distinction is is really quite artificial in many ways. In yeah. in lots of other genres, in lots of not in lots of other literatures around the world, that distinction doesn't yeah. exist in quite the same way. No, no, um, no, it doesn't. No. So it's it's a really interesting thing, and, and at the same time, we have this real. Anxiety, as you say in that quote, for authenticity, which I think can be quite harmful as well, because there becomes this desire to um, for people to write what feels authentic to those commissioning mm. and reading, which actually yeah. may not necessarily be that, and, and it's not what fiction is. It's not. It's that fiction isn't about presenting someone's experience exactly as it is on a plate. At least I don't think it should be. But it is. There is a big. A big mess going on with it, isn't it? In, in terms of sorting that question out, I think it is really important work you're doing. You know, exploring those boundaries, but also something else that I really enjoy in your work is that there is, although it comes and you described it came initially from a place of anger and mischief, but there is a real humanity in it, a real sense of connection and and generosity in it, and I found it hugely heartening as a writer. I mean, reading the biographical dictionary, I found in some ways, it felt like a portrait of many of the neuroses that we as writers go through, taken to extremes and sort of thrown back to me, shown, you know, this is this is how we all feel sometimes. And it was almost a sense of you're not alone, you know. And, and there was a lovely, in the final entry for uh, Zara Zilin Levelois, um, there's a lovely section where you say... Um, the power of writing is one of the greatest things we have, whether it is read or not. And you say that Sarah's story should be for all those whose lives and work have come to nothing. Let it be for all the lives we could live, of all the people we will never know, the people we will never be. Um, and I think there's something really moving about that. And it would be so easy for a satirical work to, like this to be purely biting and purely funny and that's it. But you take it further than that. How did you make that happen? How did that? How did you get to that point? It was. It was. It was. As you say, that I mean, I, I realised quickly that if I was going to be writing fifty-two of these stories, to have everyone to be a scathing like mockery <laughs> would 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 wear thin, or or it would appeal to the wrong kind of reader, or it would just come across as bitterness. You you were right to identify the anger and mischief of its initial impulse, which is you know satirical and, and pungent in that way poking fun at people but so there are a few few of the cases that are like that but it, it, it would clearly wear thin very quickly and and also that there was this genuine sense of we going back to what what the point of fiction is which we, we kind of touched on before is fiction remembers that which was never remembered in the first place and I thought that was a really important point just a, a big example of that is uh, I recently saw uh, an exhibition of the work of the photographer called Vivian Meyer mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of this woman she yeah. uh, she was a, an amazing street photographer in the US mostly in Chicago and New York in the 50s and 60s into the early 70s um, but never showed her work to anybody, anybody at all, and died penniless, completely unknown, had been regarded as a mad woman for the last few years of her life, okay? Now, what happened was a guy was searching, a few, few years later, uh, actually many years later, a guy was in a, a kind of garage sale, one of those clear-outs they had of, of, in which there was some of her stuff. He finds a box of, I think, a couple of dozen undeveloped reels of 
photographic film, has no idea what it is, buys it dirt cheap, goes home, develops these pictures and finds out they are just, just amazing photographs, really capturing the life of those times. I mean, it's, it's stunning photography. But this woman had died completely unknown and now she's gone on to, to have a name and he did some research and found out about her, okay? Uh, so she's gone on to have a name and there are exhibitions and books available of her work, even though she died unknown and in penury. Mm. But what that means is for every Vivian Meyer who is rescued from oblivion just by that chance of some of her work surviving and being discovered and then managing to, to find the right person to transmit it to a wider audience. For every one of those, that almost certainly, I mean, it certainly means there are other great works, whether photographers or painters or writers who have written brilliant work or made great paintings, which have just got completely lost. Mm. Now, how can we ever know about those if not by imagining them? So that's what fiction does, and what and what the the three books of mine really try try to do: try to imagine or remember that which was never remembered in the first place. Which I do think it is is an important case. Quite maddening in a way, really. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, and now you also write short stories. Um, mm -hmm. How different is the short story form for you from writing longer form fiction? Um, I mean, the secret is, is I, I always and I only write short stories and, and the three books presented as they are, um, are I, I regard them all as collections of short stories which, which have been put together mm -hmm. as, as novels. I mean, the first one is, it has that, 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 that completion about, but it's actually 52 very short stories. Mm -hmm. um, the second one, which, which is accounts of the who's who and everyone's somebody else, is accounts of these books. And I, I wrote the sections which were the books first, mm -hmm. as aware that they had, had to be self-contained elements, and then strung the rest of the narrative which links them all together around that. The third book, The Blind Accordionist, I mean, calls it, I mean, I've joked about this, it's a, a collection of short stories pretending to be a novel, pretending to be a collection of short stories. <laughs> but the, the key part, that the main part, is the, these nine stories, mm. uh, which, again, I wrote first and then, and, then, and then worked all this kind of critical apparatus, the forward and the afterward and the footnotes and the explanations and the bibliography around that. Um, so, so for me, it's always been about the short form, and so I don't really know how to write a novel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you you do your books do have a kind of they do reward a careful reader because actually there are cross references between stories, and in in the biographical dictionary, for example, that there are texts that pop up between certain entries mm. get referred to in one someone stumbles across a copy of one in in one and then it's uh, its author is then profiled 10 entries later um so you do yeah. there are there are kind of clever connections that lead give a sense of something building or something growing towards something that's greater than the sum of its parts i think yeah, so it, I mean, I see what you I see what you mean. They are they're interconnected, but short stories. But there there is, I don't know. It, it feels of, of a piece as well at the same time. Yeah, that I, I I do like that 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 idea of building mm. connections between them, however slight, tiny references to to give them some of that kind of overall structural mm. coherence. Um, yeah. 
And you've also edited, um, you edited an anthology, uh, Cities Birmingham, and, and also a collection of short stories called Love Bites, short stories inspired by a punk band, a Mancunian punk band. What was that experience like working as an editor? How did you find that? First of all, I loved it. I loved it. I love working with, we, that was mostly, I think the Birmingham book was deliberately all emerging writers. The Buzzcocks book was a few slightly more established writers and a lot of emerging writers. And, and, and I love it. I love reading the work and, and, and editing it and shaping it into a whole and seeing the thing come to life. I love it. On the other hand, there's, there is the, the more practical aspects of being an editor which means a bit of horse trading sometimes there are people who you might want in an anthology who you can't get but then for some other reasons there are some things that you might be less wanting to get in there or or trying to get the thing to read like a coherent whole and and working with other editors as well so there's Mm. that you have to be able to relinquish control whereas the great things about writing short stories particularly novels to a certain extent is you are we all need editors of course and publishers but you know i've had pretty much i would say 98 percent creative control over over those books whether with an with an anthology or an edited collection you have to let other people do things that might not have been Mm -hmm. your choice so that that was that that was the learning experience Mm -hmm. of it for me but but mostly so um if if in a hundred years time a literary scholar perhaps someone sort of in the mould of the writer of the biographical dictionary, the, the, the hero of your second book, finds a C.D. Rose novel, what would you like them to make of it? Um, firstly, I'd, I'd, I'd be delighted that, that the thing still exists in 100 <laughs> years' time. And and I honestly, I honestly think that would be enough if it's still there. Let them make of it what they will, but... But that idea of permanence and persistence, I think, is a wonderful one, and it would be, it would be wonderful to know that a century on, it still exists somewhere. That was C.D. Rose in conversation with Anne Morgan. You can find out more about C.D. Rose on the Royal Literary Fund website. And that concludes episode four hundred and forty-six, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode four hundred and forty-seven. Martin Waits talks to Doug Johnston about learning crime writing on the job, adopting a female pseudonym and the joys of writing Daleks. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk Thanks for listening.